Turn, if you would, to the 10th chapter of the book of Proverbs. Hopefully, we're actually going to finish the 10th chapter today. <coughs> I know, I've said that before, so I'll believe it when I see it. The last three lessons, we've been working our way through the 10th chapter. As I mentioned at the beginning, the 10th chapter begins what most people think about when they think about the book of Proverbs, which are the individual nuggets of wisdom that were collected by Solomon. And I'm getting hidden signals. And sometimes they're connected and sometimes they're not. So it is interesting finding the connections and interactions among the different verses as we see them in the book of Proverbs. Now, as I said when we started chapter 10, at some point I'm going to have to change my tactic. Otherwise, we're going to be doing the book of Proverbs for a long, long time. So I've warned you before, some Sunday I'm going to come in and we're going to be on chapter 29, just as a warning. And you're going to go, but what happened about to chapter 20 and 19? And so, Well, sorry, we're just going to jump. Some Sunday. We finished up somewhere around verse 20, 21. So I'm going to read a few verses to get us a running start into today's lesson. Starting in verse 20. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little value. The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of judgment. We'll start with verse 22 today. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth, and he adds no trouble to it. We had a discussion at the beginning of this chapter about what wealth would mean to the listener of this proverb, to the person who read it in an agrarian society Wealth would be food on the table, shelter over your head, and probably something to pass on to the next generation. It would not have been the accumulation of vast amounts of stuff, which is what we think about when we think about wealth today. Wealth is connected to righteousness in the book of Proverbs. <coughs> Because we saw at the beginning of the chapter that it is quite possible to get wealth through the wrong means. But, we are told, having done so, it has no value to you. Ultimately, wealth obtained through the wrong methods is not worth having. And here we see that the blessing of the Lord is wealth, but there's a connection to it. And it brings no trouble with it. Just out of curiosity, what are the troubles that, associ that are associated with having wealth? Thieves. <laughs> you have a lot more relatives. Maybe that's the same thing as thieves. <laughs> Pardon? Pride. You begin to think, see what I have done? Somebody else. A lot more taxes, lawsuits, people are coming after you because they want your wealth. It is one of the things that chokes out the gospel. You remember the parable of the sower throwing out the seed. 
and some of it falls and it starts growing. But the worries and cares of this world, the desire for wealth chokes it out. We talked two weeks ago about uh, poverty as opposed to wealth. And we commented on the verse that we will talk about in chapter 30 where the author says, don't let me be poor and don't let me be rich because if I'm poor, I'll steal and that'll look bad. If I'm rich, I'll think I don't need God. So there are sins associated with each end of the spectrum. The reality is, and I think all of us know this, you can get money and money isn't going to solve your problems. Wealth in and of itself will not solve the underlying problems of your life. Now, wealth is better than poverty. Wealth provides you certain advantages. We saw this in the last lesson where we talked about wealth being the strong city, that it gives you protection. But wealth without righteousness brings wealth and trouble. What the blessing of the Lord is, is wealth, that is, your needs are being met, and there is no trouble attached to it. And that's quite an accomplishment, because we all know people who have wealth, and it does them no good. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth, and he adds no trouble to it. So the options are you can have wealth with trouble, you can have wealth without trouble. And what's the difference? The difference is the blessing of the Lord. How is it that we obtain the blessing of the Lord? This should be easy from the book of Proverbs. Pardon? Righteousness. Following the path of wisdom, following, there's several phrases that we'll see today, the way of the Lord, following God's path is the way of righteousness which brings about the blessing of the Lord. Long pause, waiting for somebody to object to this. Nobody's going to object. Good. We can keep going. Psalms 1. What does it tell us? The seed of scoffers. Or, right. But it's... Everything that he does prospers. It is interesting to me. Let's just have a little aside here. As I have studied the book of Proverbs in preparation for these lessons, I studied the book of Proverbs because I taught it actually in here 10 or 15 years ago. Who knows how long ago it was. We live in a day of grace. Okay, We recognize that salvation is by grace alone. It is God's favor bestowed upon us because we as sinners can do nothing to earn our salvation. So sometimes we begin to get this idea that because we live in an age of grace, 
God doesn't care whether we follow the way of righteousness or the way of foolishness because it's all grace anyway. And we begin to think that it doesn't matter. The reality, particularly from the book of Proverbs, but I believe from the scripture as a whole, is that it really does matter. You can be saved by grace and live a pretty miserable life if you insist on doing things your own way and follow the path of foolishness. There is a question, and I'm not going to tell you the answer to this question, of can you be a Christian and continue to follow the path of foolishness all your life? The reason I'm not going to tell you the answer is I don't know the answer. I actually do know the answer. But what you're really after is how close can I get? How much can I live a life of foolishness and still pretend to be a Christian? And my contention is if you're asking that question, you need to repent. A person who has been saved by grace and has understood the fear of the Lord does not ask the question, how close can I get to sin without being burned? They ask, how can I get close to God, which involves getting close to righteousness, recognizing that we all sin. If we, hate, if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us. So we continue to grow toward righteousness, and that is the Christian walk. If you want to be a Christian because at some point in the Baptist church you walked down the aisle as a child, and now having done that, I can live my life of foolishness and nobody will care, that should be a red flag saying, What did you really mean? when you walked down that aisle and said you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. We sometimes worry that if I say God expects certain things of us, that somehow I'm falling back into a belief that it's of works, that salvation is of works, that sanctification is of works. It's all of grace. None of this, none of this gets done without the grace of God. The blessing of the Lord is wealth without trouble. What is a blessing? It is something that is bestowed upon us. Is it a wage? Is it something that we've earned? No, it is a blessing that God gives us. The way I look at it is we put ourselves into a situation where we allow God to bless us. If I am going to live a life of foolishness, I am putting myself in a position where God says, nope, you go live your life of foolishness, and when you're ready to repent, I'll be waiting for you. It is interesting because we we wrestle with this as a community of believers today. How much 
how far, how close to that line can I get? And the reality is we shouldn't even see that line because we should be facing the other direction. Let's keep going. The, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth, and he adds no trouble to it. That does not mean you are going to be as wealthy as Bill Gates. Sorry. That is not the promise associated with this. If I have food, if I have clothing, if I have a roof over my head, I'm going to be content. And God will give you that, and he won't add trouble to it. Go ahead. Most definitely. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that how we measure wealth, how we measure wealth in our materialistic society has everything to do with dollar signs, okay? And that is one indicator. We like it because it's easy to measure. We like it because we can show it off to other people. But if you are wealthy and your relationships are really wretched, what good has it done you? You can die and they can bury you in a fancy coffin. But if nobody's there to mourn, has your life really had any value? Yes. When the Bible, like in the book of Proverbs, talks about the righteous and the wicked, and it talks about wealth, and it talks about, uh, you know, the bad things that happen to the wicked and all that stuff, it's, uh, the name of the wicked will rot. Okay, well, throughout my life, I've seen a lot of wicked people that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've also known very good Christian people that were as poor as mud. Mm-hmm. My my thing is, how do you tell when you're reading these passages what exactly, specifically, it's referring to in terms of wealth and whether those things are temporal or eternal mm-hmm. in terms of what they're actually talking about in the Word, what the Word of God's actually saying? Mm-hmm. And the answer is? Let me cheat for just a second, okay? Verse 27 says, The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Now, I'm going to answer your question in a very roundabout way. Let's take every human being that ever, that ever died, okay? Every human being that ever lived that is now dead. And let's put them on a scale of righteousness, I don't have a clue how to do this, okay? We put them on this scale of righteousness. Some, Mother Teresa is very righteous. Some, Adolf Hitler, the other end of the scale, okay? So we have them all on this scale of righteousness. And we're going to calculate the average age of everyone at the righteous end and the average age of everyone at the wicked end And we're going to prove mathematically that this verse is correct. Okay? As a good mathematician slash engineer, that's what I want to do. But how in the world can I do that? How in the world do I know 
as an outsider what true righteousness really looks like in an individual life. You see, we want a mathematical answer, okay? The righteous live a long time, the wicked die young. Yet we all know truly righteous people who were martyred, who died of cancer, who died in accidents at a very young age. Conversely, we do know wicked people who died young. And we know wicked people who were wicked till the day they died at 112. Maybe not 112, but you get the picture. So, is this verse wrong? Because I cannot prove mathematically that the righteous live 10.6 years longer than the wicked do. Huh. Maybe we're looking at this all wrong. Okay? First off, we're on a we're on a big digression. Your goal is to make sure I don't make it through chapter 10, right? <laughs> That's your goal in life. Let's look for a moment at the difference in the types of societies that was present when most of the Bible was written, an agrarian society, and our society today, which is very uh, mechanistic. Okay, we're in, we're in an age of machines. And in an age of machines, if I walk over and I flip the light switch, it's back there, if I flip the light switch and the lights come on, I go, it's working. If it doesn't come on, I say it's broken and there is something that needs to be fixed. And when I find the thing that needs to be fixed, I fix it and the lights work. There is a connection there. It's a machine. As much as you might doubt, uh, doubt this next statement, computers are just machines. They do not have personalities. They do not hate you. Okay? I know. You find that hard to believe. I have an individual that I work with who cusses Bill Gates regularly because his machine, it's, it's not, it, it's a machine. There is it either works or there is something that needs to be corrected to make it work. In an agrarian society, when I go to work my field, there are certain things that I must do. I must prepare the soil. I must plant the seed. I must water it. I must do these things. But even if I do those things, God in his providence may have something else in mind. Now, if I don't do those things, I am guaranteed 100% that I will not have a crop. But if I do those things, I am still dependent upon God's providence to bless my endeavor and sometimes I have fabulous crop, sometimes I have okay crop, sometimes I barely make it to get seed corn for the next year. Do you see the difference in mentality? We, in our me mechanistic mind, go to the book of Proverbs and we say, these are a set of instructions for flipping on a light switch. 
And if I take that one instruction and if I follow it, the light will always 100% come on. And we neglect the reality of God and his providence accomplishing his purposes. I've used the illustration in here before. You can talk about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown in the fiery furnace. And God saves them from the fiery furnace. We talk about Stephen, the first Christian martyr, being stoned to death. Why did God save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and not save Stephen? Was Stephen less righteous? No. God had a plan. God had a plan that involved saving these three young men and allowing this young man to go on to heaven. Who lost? None of them. Stephen didn't lose. Stephen made it to heaven. God had a plan. So, what does all this mean? I believe that living a righteous life adds years to your life, like this proverb says. I believe, if it were possible, and I don't believe it's possible, to add up the average age at death of all righteous people versus the average age of death of... I believe it would show that there is a connection between long life and living a life the way God intended us to live it. I mean, some of this has nothing to do with spiritual matters at all. You know, if you're a wicked individual and you're involved in drugs and large amounts of alcohol and you beat your body to a pulp doing things that you shouldn't do and you have sexually connected diseases, you're going to die younger. Okay? Even if you forget the, the spiritual side of it, that lifestyle will wear out your body. Whereas if you take care of your body as the temple of God and you live the life that God would have you, then you will live longer. But when we look at individuals and we see uh, Jim Elliott, the missionary to South America who was killed by the Indians, and we say, there's a young man, he died young, he must have been the wicked. No. God had a plan. God had a providence. So we can look at the proverb as an indicator of how we are to live our lives in the same way that we have to prepare the field, plant the seed, water the plants, if we're ever going to have a crop. Because if we don't do those things, we are guaranteed that we're going to be in trouble. If you do not follow the proverbs, guaranteed you're going to have problems. Now, you might live a long life. Be a wicked person, die at a ripe old age of 112. But I guarantee you that, as we saw in the last verse, you can have wealth, but you can have troubles associated with it. We do not know. We do not know the inner conflicts in people's hearts. We can't judge that. We're not given that insight. What we are given is the Scripture that tells us it is always, 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 always better to do things God's way. Now, that's a long answer to get around to your question because it is the question of the book of Proverbs to the modern mind. 
because the modern mind is looking for a set of incantations. If I do this, God has to do this for me. If I do this, God has to do this. God doesn't have to do squat for you. God has chosen to bestow grace and mercy on us because of his love for us. And God will bless and God will honor those who give glory to him and live a righteous life. And that's the message of the book of Proverbs. You can study the book of Proverbs. You can be the most righteous person in the world. And you, will, and you can still die at a ripe young age of 25. And you know what? You're in heaven and you don't care. Okay? <laughs> you don't care. You did not lose all, every, every blessing that God promised you has been given to you. Every single one of them. But while you are on this earth, to do things God, God's way brings wealth with no trouble. It brings blessing, not cursing. It brings good things, not bad things. And we can spend our lives looking at the wicked. I mean, there's a psalm about this. I spend my days and I see the wicked and they seem to be doing well. And then I go into the temple of the Lord and I see the end result of the wicked and I see what that path leads to. And all of a sudden I am not as envious as I once was. You know? From a male perspective, you may sit there and look at the guy that has had all the women in the world and you think, in the back of your mind, you, won't, you don't say this publicly, in the back of your mind you say, man, that's really cool. But then you begin to realize what that path leads to. And you go, no, that's really not that cool. And if you don't understand where that path leads to, it's because either A, you're a fool, or B, you're the simple and you have not learned wisdom. When we learn wisdom, then we learn that the path of foolishness always leads to harm. And the path of righteousness always leads to blessing. But we don't see that. What we want, what we really want, is I want to be able to open Forbes magazine when they have the list of the billionaires in the world, that came out a couple of weeks ago. You know, there's 1,200 billionaires or something in the world. And we want all 1,200 of them to be strong Christians. That's what we want. So we can stand up and prove mathematically that the book of Proverbs is true. That's what we want to the world. Well, the world isn't going to believe it irregardless of what the numbers are. The question is, the question is, are we willing to live a life of righteousness and be content with what God provides us, to be content with the blessings of God? Isn't that a strange phrase? To be content? Why wouldn't we be content with the blessings that God gives us? We're not content 
because we have our minds and our eyes set on everything else. Everything else. C.S. Lewis uses the line, it's not that we settle for too little. What is his line? We're worried that we're, we're, we're offered so much and we don't recognize that we're settling for so little. He said it's the child playing in a little mud hole making mud cakes, not understanding what it means that you just offered to take them to the beach and see the glorious ocean. We settle for too little. What God wants to give us are the blessings of the Lord. And we sit here and go, well, if that's all he's going to give me, I guess I'll suffer through it. It's a strange world that we live in. I digressed, sorry. The blessings of the Lord bring wealth, and he adds no trouble to it. A fool finds pleasure in evil conduct, but a man of understanding delights in wisdom. This is a fascinating verse. I like that word delight. And it is somewhat connected to what I just said. You know, if I tell one of my children, you have to do such and such, oftentimes the response is, well, if I have to, you know, since I'm smaller and all my resources are derived from my parents, I guess I have to do what they, they tell me to do, or who knows what will happen. And there is this reluctance to do what is asked of them. But the person following the path of wisdom, the righteous individual, the man of understanding, doesn't follow the path reluctantly, but they delight in it. What do you think it means to delight in wisdom? I mean, what is wisdom that you would delight in it? You know, if I said you delighted in a bowl of ice cream, there's this physical thing sitting in front of you. And you look at it and you go, I delight in that. But wisdom is a little bit esoteric. What does it mean to delight in wisdom? Come on. To be peaceful and content. That's very good. To take pleasure in it. To be grateful. To be excited about it. To, to look forward to every. In fact, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. The problem is, is that we believe wisdom is some esoteric thing. We haven't read the book of Proverbs enough to get it ingrained in our head that wisdom is not some strange esoteric thing that has no connection to our everyday real life. You ever heard that phrase? You know, we go to church on Sunday and the rest of the week we have to go to the real world. Okay, you heard that phrase? Wisdom is the real world. We've had lessons about this. God structured the world by wisdom. 
Wisdom is the integral pattern of how the world was constructed. And the man of understanding delights in doing things God's way. Back to my favorite verse. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. He is a rewarder of those who do things God's way. He is a rewarder of those who follow the path of wisdom. We don't delight in it because we're too busy thinking we would be delighted in something else, i.e., something along the path of foolishness. How many of you have ever talked to somebody? Okay, they don't use these exact words, but you know, they grew up in a church, they did nice, sweet things all their life, and at some point they just said, I'm tired of being good. You know? I use this story because it actually came up this week in a real life example, and I won't tell you who. Um, you know, I, I'm just tired of doing, I, I want to go have some fun. What does the first part of this verse say? A fool finds pleasure in evil conduct. We can talk about following the path of wisdom as a duty. And it actually is a duty. It is an obligation that God has placed on all of us. But at some point in your life, you are going to need to decide what is it that brings you pleasure. And the reality is you don't really decide that in a conscious decision. It is your life produces results and you begin to delight in a particular path you are either delighted when you have the opportunity to do something that you shouldn't be doing you know we saw that all the way back in chapter one where the violent people come to say come with us let's go beat somebody up just for the fun of it Come on, let's go do it. And at some point you go, yeah, that's fun. Now, I don't know about you, most of us have not gone out this week and beat somebody up just for the fun of it. Okay? But oftentimes we live a life outside of the path of wisdom and we enjoy it. We enjoy our little pet sins. We enjoy our little dabbling in this and our little dabbling in that. We enjoy because we have trained ourselves to enjoy the wrong things. And in the same way, we need to learn, we need to learn to delight in doing things God's way. As we study God's path, as we study the path of wisdom, as we study who God is, as we study the rewards of following after righteousness, as we contemplate our eternal state, we should not envy 
the wicked. We should delight in wisdom. We should delight when we learn how things really work. Go ahead. <laughs> that's a good some <laughs> that's a good line. I need to use that sometime <laughs> her 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 comment was she had complained to some pastor that you know she had so little, and these rich, wicked people were doing so well, and the pastor told her, "This is as close to hell as you're going to be, and this is as close to heaven as they're going to be. It's a good line. Go ahead. I spent two and a half hours yesterday looking at normal distribution curves, okay? My daughter is taking a statistics class. She has a test today, and there was some problem she didn't understand. I was a math major, okay? But I never took statistics and probabilities, and she had this question that it literally took me two and a half hours. I finally figured out the answer. So I know all about standard deviation curves. From yesterday's contemplation. But let me tell you what I really thought about this week. Okay? Now that you bring that up, let's pick a good verse. Ah, verse 24. That's where we're headed. What the wicked dreads will overtake him, what the righteous desires will be granted. In our mind, to use Dr. Boyd's analogy, Here I am. Over there are the really righteous people. Okay, you know who they are. The people that are really righteous. And over there are the people who are really wicked. And you know who they are, right? And you know who they vote for. No, sorry. (laughs) You want to move to the other side of the room? (laughs) And most of us, <laughs> sheeps and goats and, what's, no, but that's the way most of us think, okay? There are some people who are really righteous, and to be quite honest, when we come in contact with them, it just annoys us most of the time, okay? And there are people who are really wicked, and that annoys us too, but we enjoy hanging around them and watching their movies, Okay? And the mass of humanity is somewhere in the middle. That's what we believe. Let me suggest that that is a false division. Biblically, you're either righteous or you're not. Now, the righteous are not perfect. 
as I just said a while ago, we still sin. We still need to confess our sins. We're still on a journey. The wicked are not as wicked as they could be. They could always be wickeder. (laughs) More wicked. Okay? We have this idea, and it comes from Rousseau and a company, that the mass of humanity are just good basic people. We're neither really good nor really bad. We're just in the middle. And I understand that because I think that way too. You know, most of the people that I work with, most of the people that I come in contact, don't kill small animals for fun. Well, some do. They don't, I mean, they don't beat their wives. They don't beat their kids, okay? And, but they also don't raise people from the dead and they don't walk on water. Most of us are just somewhere in the middle. In reality, you are facing one of these directions. In reality, you are walking one way or the other. As I walk toward righteousness, I may trip occasionally. I do, every day. But I'm still headed toward righteousness. From the, pros- from the view of the book of Proverbs, there really is a group in the middle. It's called the simple. Okay? These are the naive, those who just haven't, and it is mostly associated with children. Children need to be instructed. In today's society, we have 50-year-olds who are naive. They're simple. But for the most part, if you've made it to 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, and you haven't chosen to pursue righteousness, you have chosen something else. So the first answer to your question is, I'm not sure there's a standard deviation curve. It's leaning one way or the other. Now, the second answer to your question, though, which is the real answer that you want, is I think we're way over here. Okay? We are, as a society, we live in a very relativistic age. What does relativism say? It says, I get to make up the rules for my own life. And the moment I say, God says you need to do X, Y, Z, they look at me and say, oh, that's just your opinion. No, it's not. It's the word of God. No, it's just your opinion. Who are you to tell me what to do? You're a legalist. Go hide in a hole. And our society as a whole is drifting in the wrong direction. And I will give you, I mean, the real reason I am teaching the book of Proverbs is because I'm struggling with it. I really am. Because as I read these passages, I sit there and I read the passage and I look at a society that not only is choosing not to do them, but is choosing to even recognize the existence or the possibility of the existence of a path of wisdom. People have always sinned. People have always cheated on their spouses. People have always done that. But when they did it, they didn't then turn around and say, let's change the rules so that what I'm doing isn't really breaking a rule. Let's change the rule instead. I mean, 
If you want to go cheat on your spouse, go cheat on your spouse. Just don't expect us to change the scripture to agree with you. Okay? Sin. But let's at least agree to acknowledge that it's sin. Our modern society is redefining, redefining the nature of truth such that the mere fact that I say there is a path of righteousness and a path of wickedness, the mere fact that that is mentioned is an affront to the modern society. And that's what, so to answer your real question, I think we're drifting off in this direction because we're losing sight of that which could redirect us. The instruction you know, submitting ourselves to the word of God is what is necessary to move in that direction. And if we refuse to do that, if we refuse to listen to the rebuke of God, then by definition, we're going to drift in that direction. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. I mean, the, the story of Lot is fabulous, you know. Abraham and Lot are living up here. Oop, we need to separate. Sodom and Gomorrah over there. So Lot goes here. You know, he's going to live in this valley. Sodom and Gomorrah is right there. And before you know it, he is living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we are told in the New Testament that Lot was a righteous man, and it bothered him that he was living in Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham was out in the desert listening to God, and Lot was seeing how close he can get. Yes, Wilton. But once again, there's always been murders, there's always been crimes, there's, it's always been there. It's just we didn't redefine the truth. We won't go there. It was back there somewhere. There was a, go ahead. By golly, we're good. Yes. <laughs> what is it? Hmm? Yeah. We do not know that there's a spiritual battle going on. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, let's blame it on the wife, right? <laughs> well, we see what she got out of the whole thing, right? Go ahead. I'm trying to avoid it. Go ahead. <laughs> We don't want to listen to the truth. Sometimes there's that voice, and sometimes it's not even my voice. 
we're not going there. Well, y'all succeeded in keeping me from finishing chapter 10. But that's okay. Proverbs, as I have studied it for the last year, and that's when I started working on it in preparation for this, is a fascinating book. It really is. If you read the commentators, there is actually a lot of discussion about how Proverbs fits into the unfolding plan of salvation in the Scripture. That unfolding plan that we see culminate with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in payment for our sins. But we see it pictured in the Old Testament in the sacrificial system, in the beginnings all the way back in Genesis, where we see this unfolding plan of salvation throughout the Bible. And there are commentators who look at the book of Proverbs and go, how does that fit in with that plan of salvation? Let's remind ourselves once again and always, every day, every minute of every day for the rest of your life, your salvation is by grace alone. You are not capable of doing enough good things to save yourself. End of discussion. It is by grace alone. Nor is it by grace plus the promise to do good things after I'm saved. Because before you're saved, you can't even promise to do good things after you're saved. But after you are saved, you will, should, ought to have a desire to follow after God. And what the book of Proverbs does is give a signpost, indicators on how to live a life of righteousness. Now, God in his providence may lead you down a path where you die at a ripe young age of 22. None of you except you, because most of us have already passed that. God may do that. God does what God wants to do. But that's okay. It is always, 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 always better to do things God's way. And the reason we don't see that is the same reason that the disciples had trouble with so much of what Christ did. And Christ would have to look at them and say, O ye of little faith, can't you see what's going on? And all we can say is, God, give us more faith. As we study the Scripture and we learn to delight in the things of God, not in the things of this world. We live in a very material world. And we do judge people. Ah, he has lots of money. He must be doing what God wants him to do. Maybe. Maybe not. That's not the criteria. The money is not the criteria. The doing what God wants you to do is the criteria. You can live in your small house and have good relationships 
have family, have friends, have a relationship with God, and you are a wealthy person. I read this week in some business magazine about a house in Florida that's being built. 90,000 square feet. And you can buy it today for $65 million. The problem is it's only 60% complete because the guy went bankrupt and couldn't finish it. Now, the house he had before that was only 27,000 square feet, and he divorced his wife over that one because they couldn't agree on what was. So this one, he wouldn't let his wife make any decisions, his new wife make any decisions because he didn't want to divorce her. But you can live in the 90,000 square foot house and be miserable, or you can do fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being righteous and being wealthy. The question is, do we follow the path of wisdom, or do we follow the path of foolishness? And then we let God, then we let God determine the rewards. But ultimately, we know what that reward is, and that is life eternal in heaven, in the presence of God. And if you think, and if you think that that is just settling for something, we need a long discussion. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you that you delight in us. And may we learn every day to more and more to delight in you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.